Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touch tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Emma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect Education Workshop, Progress in the Treatment of Multiple Myeloma. Today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, GlaxoSmithKline, and an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have a lot of you on this call today. There's over 350 participants on the call. You come from all over the United States, in both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. We also have a number of international participants. I'm just, I'm just going to mention the countries that they're from. Brazil, Canada, Colombia, Cyprus, Egypt, India, Iraq, Lithuania, Nigeria, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a global call as well. And it's credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now, it is my pleasure, this is our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Matthew Butler. Dr. Butler is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology, Oncology, Department of Medicine, Mays MD Anderson Cancer Center, UT Health San Antonio. And Dr. Butler will be addressing discussion of the progress in the treatment of multiple myeloma, current standard of care, including clinical trial updates, new and emerging treatments, and the role of transplantation. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Butler. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Messler. I really uh, enjoy being part of these programs. Um, and I, I like talking about myeloma because it's within the larger world of cancer treatment, it's an area where a huge amount of progress has been made uh, in, in the last really two decades of uh, drug discoveries and of um, just progressive improvements in what we can do as far as treating and controlling the disease. Um, and so every time I talk about progress in myeloma, there's something new to talk about. Um, I won't try to talk about all of the progress that has been made because there's just so much to say and, and there's uh, a lot of medicines out there that are well established. Um, we've been using for, uh, in some cases, 20 plus years and we, we have confidence in them. We know that they, they help people and, and um, you know, many of you have probably already talked to your doctor about them. Um, but I'll, I'll talk about some of the things that are changing just more in the last year or two, some of the things that myeloma doctors, uh, you know, debate amongst ourselves at conferences um, about how we should approach the disease and what options we have. Um, the biggest change that I think is underway uh, is in the in initial treatment is uh, starting to use immunotherapy and specifically uh, a, a monoclonal antibody drug called daratumumab uh, as part of the initial treatment. This is still a bit controversial. It hasn't been uh, th that long that we've had good data to support doing this. And there's still lots of uh, ways to, to treat myeloma without using this drug initially. Uh, and, and there's lots of people that think it's it's better to save it and, and use it later or have it in, in reserve. But, um, but I would say that there, as we get more data, uh, a lot of doctors are starting to shift towards giving this drug um, earlier rather than later. It's a drug we like because it, it, it has comparatively few side effects. Uh, it, it's, uh, it, it harnesses your own immune system, uh, tags the, the bad cells that we want to destroy, but instead of trying to destroy those cells with a chemical, it allows the body's own, um, you know, defenses to, to attack and destroy them. And this just tends to cause a lot fewer problems for people. Um, 
So I, I would say we're kind of in the middle, and there's there's people who who uh, who are advocate for using this drug earlier, and some who don't. Um, but at least it broadens the range of options that we can offer people up front. And there's certainly patients that I feel benefit from it, especially uh, people that have a hard time with some of our slightly older treatments. Um, Another thing that's just not that new and it's still, but but it's still coming along slowly uh, is the concept of personalized medicine. So being able to look not just at the fact that you have the diagnosis of multiple myeloma, but uh, look a little deeper into the molecular and genetic um, nature because there's, there's actually quite a bit of diversity in the disease. Not every patient has the same mutations in the genes that, uh, leading to myeloma. Um, and we'd like to be able to use that information to choose a, a treatment that's good, that's better for one person and a different treatment for another person. Uh, we have pretty limited uh, understanding of how to do that just yet, and there's really only one mutation that we have a good treatment specifically for. Um, the good news is it's, it's, it's the most common uh, genetic change that's seen in myeloma, called translocation 1114, um, and we have now pretty good knowledge that, uh, that a drug called venetoclax, uh, V-E-N-E-T-O-C-L-A-X, uh, kind of a mouthful, but um, it, it, it works pretty well for folks who have that mutation, and it doesn't do much for, for others. And so knowing the genetics uh, of the cancer becomes more important. Um, it's still not the first treatment we give folks uh, with that, uh, that change, but it, it does add to our, our array of options. And it's a reason why, um, uh, you know, studying the bone marrow and, and doing advanced testing on the bone marrow uh, is, is becoming more useful for us. Um, there's a class of drugs that, that I used to talk about we thought was uh, going to be really helpful, and I think it still will be, um, called antibody drug conjugates. Um, th- and, the, and the example of that uh, was Blenrep, B-L-E-N-R-E-P. Um, this is a drug where you have an, 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 immuno, uh, an immune globulin or an antibody that is targeted, that can seek out and find myeloma cells, and then it has a little chemotherapy molecule stuck to it. So once it finds the myeloma cell, that it delivers the, the, the drug that we want to get right where it needs to go. Um, we were starting to use that, and we, we, we were encouraged by the early data, um, but uh, a few months ago, some new data came out that was disappointing. Uh, I, I don't think it means that it's, it's not a good drug, but it wasn't as good as it was thought to be. And uh, the decision was made by the company and by the, the FDA that we, we should stop using it, at least in the United States, until we get more information. I think ultimately we may be able to use it uh, in combination with other things, but maybe not on its own. Um, uh, although I, I still, I, I did use it and I, I saw some people helped by it. Uh, Fortunately, when that drug disappeared, uh, we got a new one to replace it almost at the same time um, that's part of yet another class of immunotherapy drugs called bispecific antibodies. Um, And the drug there that we have already is is teclistamab or tecvaly, T-E-C-V-A-Y-L-I. and this is just works in a slightly different way, but it's the same basic idea. It harnesses the immune system and then has that uh, fight the, the disease better than it, it manages to do on its own. Um, and, and this is now in uh, coming more into widespread use. It's a little hard to give because we have to start people out in the hospital. That's a precaution that we're, we have to do to, to watch for... Um, reactions that some people have to it, even though the, most people don't get them, most people feel fine on this drug. Um, but the, the data that we're seeing in, in terms of how well this drug works is really encouraging. It's, it's a, a drug that can help a lot of people. And um, again, the toxicity or the side effects uh, are lower than some of the drugs we, we, we've been using in the past. 
Now, the, the older, the well-established drugs are still where we always start. These new, the newest options uh, for, for treating any disease uh, are ones that we start using only in cases where other things haven't worked. Because as long as we have a tried and true option, we want to try that first. Um, and then we gradually get more comfortable and get more knowledge of how to use the newest thing. Um, and that's a, that's a process that we're always, we're, you know, we're always coming up with new treatments and always studying them um, because we're never satisfied uh, w with how well we're doing. We always want to get better and, until we actually can cure this disease reliably, which right now we still can't do. Um, the biggest thing that's, that's been new and, and it's still happening and we're still watching this story unfold is, uh, is a, a kind of treatment called cellular therapies. Um, and the, the buzzword for that that you may run across is CAR-T, um, C-A-R-T, but it stands for chimeric antigen receptor T cells. Um, this is just a fancy way of saying that we can take uh, cells, immune system cells, from the patient, the very patient who, who has multiple myeloma, we can take other cells um, that can be trained or modified so that they can fight the disease better. That, this happens in a lab, and then the cells are given back to the patient. Um, and uh, the, the, these treatments have been available for a few years now. They're still very complicated to give. Not every center can give them, and, and, uh, and they're also, um, it, it, there aren't enough capacity to give everyone these, this treatment who, who wants it or might get some benefit from it. It's really reserved for the hardest cases where, where we're struggling to come up with a good treatment. Um, but, but some of those uh, patients that have been treated with this have seen just amazing benefit. Um, and, uh, you know, this, it, 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 this is another one that started out very exotic and specialized, very limited access gradually becoming more available and more, more in use, and uh, I think we'll see that continue. Um, uh, it's, it's uh, you know, still something that you wouldn't, wouldn't be the first treatment or the second treatment you'd talk about, but um, it, it, it's, uh, at some point you may want to consider it, and, uh, and there's, there's a lot of excitement about it. Um, the reason we have all of these treatments and the reason why new things are always coming along is because of clinical trials. Um, the, every single treatment we have, the reason we know that it works, the reason we know that it's safe is because it's been tested on, and that's, that process starts out in labs and uh, it involves um, testing in, uh, in cell cultures and testing in animals, but ultimately, um, human beings have to try these treatments and, and see how things go. There's a really, uh, uh, you know, carefully thought out system for designing clinical trials, governing them, making sure they're done safely, and, and making sure that only treatments that are truly promising and, uh, and that we really believe will be, be helpful uh, are given to people. Um, and uh, but it's something that uh, we're we're always looking to to get better and to learn more. And so uh, some of you on this call may uh, be offered participation in, in a trial. That may be uh, you know one of the one of the choices you have. It's always a choice. It's never the only thing you can do. Um, and uh, and it's a choice that comes with some trade-offs. There's some uncertainty about just how well. A treatment will work. If we knew for sure how well it worked, there'd be no need to do a trial. Um, and there's sometimes some uncertainty about how safe or what the side effects might be like. Um, there is there's, there's potentially a lot of benefit, though, not just to you know science and and to future patients, uh, you know, who will maybe be able to get new treatments that that we study this way. But even to the person who goes on a trial, because it's a way of getting access to a, a newer treatment that, that otherwise wouldn't be available. Before, when a treatment has not been F approved um, by the regulatory agencies, uh, a trial is the only way to get it. 
And, uh, and so for some people, that's the right choice to make is, as far as taking care of their disease. It's something you need to uh, really, you know, have a frank discussion with your doctor about what kind of a trial it is and, and what kind of a drug it is and what's known and what's not known um, and, and not rush into it. Um, and often folks on trials have to make some additional uh, sacrifices as far as visits, extra tests. Um, we want to, you know, study and learn everything we possibly can uh, from a patient who's on a trial uh, if they're going to go to the trouble of doing it. But, um, but uh, you know, overall trials are, are this, this clinical research is something we all believe in um, as cancer doctors. It's, it's why we go into this field is, is to, uh, to try to, you know, constantly be improving and, uh, and um main part of a trial is, is a, a way that, that you as a patient can also be part of that. Um, the last thing I was going to address, and I'm, I'm running a little low on time, but uh, the, the question about stem cell transplant comes up again and again in myeloma. It's really one of the oldest treatments we have. It's been known to be helpful uh, since you know, for at least 30 years, probably a little longer, we've been doing transplants. Um, uh, it, it causes some confusion because it sounds like a, it, you're, it's a transplant from somebody else. That's what most transplants are. But in myeloma, we do autologous stem cell transplants, meaning you get your own cells back. You're not, you don't need a donor. You don't get anything from anybody. Um, and it's a way that uh, we can treat the, the, the myeloma a little more intensively than we could otherwise. Um, give a little higher dose of chemotherapy and then give the cells to help you recover from it. Um, study after study has been done to, to test this against not doing it or against other things. Um, and it, 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 it seems to still be an important tool that we have, even with all the other treatments we have. Um, there, that doesn't mean that it's right for everybody, and it's, it's, it is a bit of an, a thing to go through as far as how long it takes. You spend some time in the hospital uh, for most people. But, uh, and it's also a, a treatment that you have to get to. You, you, we don't do a transplant right at the beginning of, of your journey. We try to get the disease controlled first. And then transplant can help it stay under control. People, you know, who, who go through a transplant have a lot longer time in remission on average than people who don't. So um, it's, a, it's a conversation that I always put off. I don't try to have it on the first day when, you're, when you have a lot of other information to absorb. But at some point in the first six months, uh, you, you may be, be introduced to the idea. And, um, and I think it's, uh, it's still a good thing to consider for, uh, for people that are healthy enough to do it. Um, and uh, I think that's, I'm at, I'm at 15 minutes, so I, I think I'll stop there, but I'm always happy to take questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Butler. That was an outstanding presentation, stellar. And you actually set the stage for today's program by covering a lot of important topics. So thank you so much. I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Monique Hartley-Brown. And Dr. Hartley-Brown is attending physician Jerome Lipper Multiple Myeloma Center, Department of Medical Oncology, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And Dr. Hartley addressing preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort and pain, reducing complications of bone disease, talking with your treatment team about quality of life concerns, and the increasing role of telehealth telemedicine appointments in the context of COVID, Omicron, seasonal flu, and allergies. It is my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hartley Brown. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Um, it's my pleasure to be here this afternoon, and I hope you can all hear me clearly. Um, I do have uh, the um, opportunity to proceed after uh, Dr. Butler's talk in regards to some of the progress made. And to keep those uh, treatments in mind, uh, talking about preventing and managing treatment side effects, I do want to mention some of the treatments that were already discussed. 
So Dr. Butler did mention daratumumab as an example of an immunotherapy that is being used to treat patients with multiple myeloma in the current uh, standard of care climate. And one of the concerns or side effects of this medication that we have seen in use of this medication, especially when added to the immunomodulatory agents such as Revlimid or lenalidomide, as some of you may be familiar with, and adding to bortezomib or Velcade with the steroid dexamethasone, what we see with these combinations is something called hypogammaglobulinemia. And that's a long-term or a big word to basically state that you're uh, circulating antibodies that normally should be present in blood are now reduced pri uh, pretty significantly with use of this particular agent. And that's partly, uh, in fact, due to the, the way that this medication actually uh, affects the body and goes after the uh, myeloma cells. As was mentioned, it does uh, hone into a particular protein that sits on the surface of the myeloma cells. And so what we tend to see is patients may have a significantly lower circulating uh, uh, antibody uh, in the blood, and that can sometimes increase the risk of infections. More often, the infections tend to be respiratory infections, and they can be atypical infections, but they can be other infections as well. And so in order to manage this, uh, we are uh, more, more and more utilizing uh, intravenous immunoglobulins, which is basically trying to give the body back what it needs in order to try to prevent these infection complications, especially in the time of uh, COVID and Omicron, et cetera. <clears throat> so that was one thing I wanted to mention with that particular agent, um, so if you doctors are suggesting you should be on intravenous immunoglobulin. This is basically um, one of the reasons why. Belantamab uh, mafodotin was also mentioned, or Blenrep, and Dr. Butler gave a wonderful discussion about how this medication, very efficacious. I still actually have patients who are benefiting from this medication. Uh, and thankfully, uh, I'm able to offer this medication through an expanded access program, which is, is, a, is a clinical trial um, to allow those patients who are already benefiting, benefiting from the medication to continue to benefit from this medication. And this particular agent is the one that was described as <clears throat> having a capacity to attach to the myeloma cells by specific protein on the myeloma cells, very different protein from DARA, but that also the medication has a toxin or um, a poison attached to it. So once the myeloma cell internalizes the medication, then that toxin is released inside the myeloma cell, basically directing the, the kill of the myeloma cell. <clears throat> Unfortunately, um, as like many medications, there is a new side effect that we've seen with use of this medication that we haven't seen with some of the others. <clears throat> and that's specifically something we call keratopathy. Essentially, it causes uh, some <clears throat> blurry vision. Uh, it, can, um, it can get uh, affected the eye, the, the lining of the eye, the epithelial lining of the, of the eye can sometimes get affected by this medication. And so one of the requirements if you're on this medicine is to be seen by an optometrist or an ophthalmologist to get an eye exam before you start to know what your baseline vision status is. <clears throat> and also while you're on the medication, before each dosing of the medicine, you are required to have this vision test. And the vision test is specifically looking at this layer of the eye that can be affected by the medication. Keep in mind, this is a reversible side effect. 
So this is not something that is going to be forever. It's a layer of the eye that does go away with time. Think of it like the skin, right? You do have loss of skin cells over time. So that blurry vision effect will uh, improve and go back to normal over time. However, with doing these eye exams and scheduling them preemptively before getting the treatment, you can pick up early signs even before the patient starts to have vision changes. You can pick up early signs of any potential damage to that layer of the eye. And then you can hold the medication, pause it, allow the, uh, the area to heal of, of that layer of the eye, and then resume. And so that's one thing I also want to mention because I've had really good success with using this medication. And I do believe, as Dr. Butler has mentioned as well, that this medication um, is probably going to be um, uh, utilized in the future. However, at this time, uh, more, is, more is to be learned about it. And clinical trials are the main way that you can access this medication. Uh, moving on to uh, teclizumab and CAR-T therapy. Now, teclizumab was the bispecific antibody that he mentioned. And then CAR-T therapy, I think he had mentioned a couple of them, carmeric antigen receptor um, T-cell therapy. Um, I'm lumping these two together because essentially they both affect the T-cell immunity as well as the myeloma cells. So they have this double effect. <clears throat> and I'm not going to go into the me mechanisms of the therapy because I think Dr. Butler already did a wonderful job there. But focusing on the, um, the side effects, uh, the more common side effects you will see is something called cytokine release syndrome. And both these therapies um, can do this. And it's usually early on in the treatment of the patient. So within about a week of receiving either of these medications, <clears throat> you can develop increased fevers or increased temperature. Uh, sometimes you can get a uh, lowering of your blood pressure. And you can essentially feel like you're having a flu-like syndrome, but it's very intense shaking, chills. It feels like you have an infection, but it's actually not an infection. The effect, side effect of the medication. And sometimes we think it's just because so much inflammatory markers are released, your immune system is almost revved up in a way. So we think that is partly the reason why we see this cytokine release syndrome. Um, but it happens with both medications, and that's the main reason why whenever individuals are started on either of these uh, uh, treatments, they're recommended to start the treatment in a monitored setting, such as in the hospital. Some places it's extremely close to the hospital because some of these therapies are now moving outside of the hospital. Because again, many of the patients do not actually um, uh, succumb to CRS or cytokine release syndrome. But if they do, it's usually an, a low grade grade one uh, or grade two, um, and there are many ways to treat this. So in the hospital setting, we typically will use medications. We'll use um, Tylenol. Uh, we will use uh, a medication called uh, Tocilizumab, uh, T-O-C-L-I-Z-U-M-U-M-A-B. And we'll also use a medication um, such as steroids, dexamethasone, something you're familiar with. Uh, and these medications can just dampen the effects of the high fevers and the high tension and allow um, uh, the medication to do its work that it's doing without having such a robust side effect that may affect the patient um, adversely. And then the other, uh, the other um, two things that I do want to mention in regards to these side effects is 
I, um, a neurotoxicity effect, um, which is can be as mild as uh, memory loss or um, things uh, such along those lines, but it can be even more severe. And so these are things that we monitor for early on, but throughout the first month of the patient receiving this therapy. And finally, cytopenias or lowering of the blood counts, the blood counts being the red blood cell count, the white blood cell count, and the platelet count. And so those are things that are more likely to be seen <clears throat> often later um, and in the outpatient setting and can require support with growth factors um, to boost the white blood cell count or the platelet count or transfusion, uh, blood transfusions to improve the hemoglobin or <clears throat> platelet transfusions to improve the platelet count. Um, so to shift gears, I do want to uh, quickly mention bone disease, which can be very debilitating and cause a lot of pain and discomfort for many patients. Uh, and many individuals may be diagnosed with signs of bone disease at the time of diagnosis. So whether it's weakening of the bones, lytic lesions in the bones, a, a, a bone fracture, these are many of the ways that patients can present a compression fracture. Uh, in order to manage this and strengthen the bones, we do recommend <coughs> sorry excuse me we do recommend uh, a bone uh, protective medication which is uh, zolindronic acid or zometa z o m e t a uh, that is a bisphosphonate similar to what we give to uh, um, postmenopausal women who have osteoporosis. It's a similar medication, much more potent, and it does a very good job in terms of resetting the imbalance in the bone and causing more bone building than bone breakdown. And so that's one way to treat bone disease. There's another medication, especially utilized in patients who already have kidney problems, and so maybe the bisphosphonate may not be safe in that patient, we may sometimes use something called denosumab, D-E-N-O-S-U-M-A-B. And this is a monoclonal antibody. It's a rank ligand antibody, but basically also does the same thing of strengthening the bones. Slightly different mechanism from zolindronic acid, but it does a very good job. And there have been <laughs> trials to look at both medications and, and um, they both work very much um, efficaciously. Uh, they're not inferior to each other. And uh, in terms of uh, some of the usual toxicities we may be uh, familiar with, with bortezomib, uh, a lot of times patients who already have baseline peripheral neuropathy, for example, numbness and tinglings in their feet, in their fingers, in their hands, uh, <clears throat> Um, these neuropathies can sometimes worsen with uh, bortezomib. And in that setting, you know, there are many ways that we can uh, mitigate these reactions, sometimes uh, by um, administering some IV fluids with the Velcade or the bortezomib that might uh, re reduce the effects um, in, the, in the offset. However, <clears throat> More importantly, uh, moisturizing, uh, emollients, uh, vitamin B complex, some of those things will be helpful. If it's a little bit more intense, we do look to uh, medications like gabapentin or Neurontin uh, to uh, relieve some of these side effects of the neuropathy and the pain. Uh, and <coughs> all of these things are essential in terms of improving an individual's quality of life. Uh, we do have to work on um, ensuring that we're not causing too many side effects of medications. Uh, the other couple of things I do want to mention is to recall that immunomodulatory medications like Revlimid or lenalidomide can cause increased risk of clotting, so a clot in the deep veins in the leg or a clot in the pulmonary um, and the pulmonary vessels in the lung. And so we do recommend either an antiplatelet therapy such as aspirin 
or uh, anticoagulation therapy, such as um, in the in in the U.S., we will tend to use things like abixaban, A P I X A B A N, or uh, Zarelto, uh, which uh, both of these medications are oral medications, a little bit easier to tolerate than the injectable versions of the anticoagulants that are available in this country. Um, and then uh, <clears throat> finally, um, in terms of uh, side effects and um, treating those, infection is our biggest concern when it comes to all of this. Infection, infection, infection. So we want to prevent, prevent, prevent infection. And how do we do so? By giving uh, preventative antibiotics. For example, uh, we might use Bactrim to prevent a atypical pneumonia, especially in patients who receive uh, daratumumab-based uh, regimens. Uh, we will uh, often utilize <clears throat> acyclovir or val acyclovir to prevent the uh, eruption of shingles, which is much more likely to happen in the setting of patients being on these medications and having an immune uh, uh, an immunocompromised uh, uh, system because of the multiple myeloma and the treatments that they're on. And so <clears throat> please keep this in mind because it's not only about the actual treatment of the actual uh, multiple myeloma, but it also extends to how do we keep you as healthy as possible, how do we keep your quality of life as, as good as we can, and also prevent you from requiring um, hospital stays or, or um, you know, being hospitalized because of infectious issues or other um, um, complications of the disease. And finally, in terms of the role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments, as you know, throughout uh, the last 10 minutes or so, I've mentioned infection several times, I've mentioned prevention several times. And so with COVID and Omicron and all these uh, flu and allergies and things that are happening, the rise in RSV and other viral infections that are happening, for patients who <coughs> are uh, able to initially have visits or they have stable disease and are doing very well, we do encourage um, telehealth or telemedicine appointments, especially because if you're having stable disease and things are very much under control, then you could get your labs done locally at the local center, have it faxed to your um, uh, or electronically sent, because nowadays we can electronically send our information medical records over to your oncologist, and then have a telemedicine appointment to discuss what the next steps are, if there are any, or if you just continue the medications as needed. <coughs> In regards to um, having a second opinion or a consultation, if you have questions in regards to clinical trials or things like that that are not necessarily require you to have an in-person visit, those are also ways that you can um, address these um, topics and, and have these appointments through a telemedicine or a telehealth visit. I would say for the individuals who have active disease or need to come in, because they are not feeling well, or this is a newly diagnosed uh, situation, then yes, come into the office, be seen, get a proper clinical exam, and um, you know, so that we can know what your baseline is, and then address the problems at hand. You may need something that we may need to do in the office, whether it might be uh, IV fluids, transfusions, or whatever the case may be. So for a sick individual who's not feeling well or for an individual who's newly diagnosed, I would strongly recommend an in-person visit. But for someone who's been on treatment, has stable disease, or just has questions in regards to a second opinion and uh, you know not really planning to change their physician, just wants input from another physician, not really planning to incorporate that new person into their healthcare team, those are some of the examples where telemedicine and telehealth might be um, much more appropriate. 
And with that, I'm going to pause there and uh, hand it over to Dr. Messner. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Dr. Hartley-Brown. That was really excellent, really extraordinary, and really um, going into all of the um, ways to manage um, some of the side effects that occur um, and the benefits of participating in, in the care that they're getting and um, just just an extraordinary presentation. I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A as well. So thank you so much. Thanks. And um, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Elizabeth O'Donnell. And Dr. O'Donnell is Clinical Director of Early Detection and Prevention of Cancer, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And Dr. O'Donnell will be addressing lifestyle, physical activity, and balance concerns with practical tips and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Donnell. Hi, my name is Betsy O'Donnell. I'm a physician at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thank you so much for the kind invitation to join you today as part of the Cancer Care Teleconference to discuss multiple myeloma, and specifically within multiple myeloma to discuss lifestyle, physical activity, tips for telehealth, and also preparing for those visits. In addition to working with patients with myeloma and precursor plasma cell disorders like MGUS and smoldering, an interest of mine is in lifestyle medicine. Lifestyle medicine is the incorporation of evidence-based recommendations around exercise, physical activity, nutrition, sleep, stress, relationships, and substance use into your health care. One of the very common questions that patients ask during their visits is, what can I do to better my health uh, and potentially to better my outcome with multiple myeloma? And number one and two are probably tied uh, on the list of questions is our exercise and nutrition. Myeloma is a little bit of a unique cancer in that 85% of patients may have complications that involve the bones of their bodies. So the first question is really, to begin with your um, doctor, is is it safe for me to exercise or what type of physical activity is it okay for me to do? You should always begin any discussion of physical activity in myeloma with your physician. Um, but, you know, really physical activity is a very broad definition. It's not just limited to exercise. You don't need to go out and run a marathon to have it be physical activity. Really, it's just as important to avoid sedentary time. And so it's tough in this day and age with everybody having personal devices and, and a lot of people working from home, more and more we find ourselves sedentary. So starting with avoiding sedentary time. Then next, it's a little bit use it or lose it. Sometimes when someone has a cancer diagnosis, a lot of people will brush and provide assistance, but it's actually really good to continue to do the things you've always done. As long as you're not having any issues with pain or, or specific myeloma problems, it is really good to continue to do household chores, light yard work, uh, babysitting for grandchildren, activities that you enjoy that keep you moving. Um, I always say, if nothing else, you can turn on some music uh, and, and move and dance around your kitchen, and, and that is physical activity. And then going beyond that for, for exercise, there's a broad range of types of exercises. You can do non-weight-bearing activities, um, and as long as you have your physician's clearance, um, and even sometimes working with a physical therapist, uh, which insurance will cover, can be beneficial to you as well. Um, Physical activity has been shown not only to improve um, people's, you know, strength and, and fitness, but also to improve mood, uh, things like depression, anxiety. It also can improve sleep quality, libido. Um, so these are really important quality of life factors and, and, and worth uh, engaging in a conversation with your physician to figure out what you can do so that you can stay active and live as vitally as possible. One of the other topics that I've been asked to discuss today is telehealth. And so I would say that one of the silver linings of the COVID pandemic is that we now have the ability to more broadly provide telemedicine visits. And this can be a really great thing, uh, particularly for patients with myeloma um, 
who, you know, often have to come in frequently, if there are visits that you can do via telemedicine, um, this is really great. One of the nice things about telehealth visits as well is if you have a family member or caregiver or loved one who wants to participate, they can join you for that call. We've all had it happen where we uh, have a doctor's appointment and we had a list of things in our head that we wanted to ask the doctor or nurse practitioner, mid-level provider, and forget, and then only when we're out in the parking lot do we remember. So I encourage everyone uh, to make a list before that visit. Write down the important things. And what are the important things? So certainly any questions you have. Uh, but in addition to that, any side effects of medications, any concerns about medications, um, you know, anything that is getting in the way of you taking your medications uh, as prescribed or as you're supposed to. These are really important topics of conversation. And, you know, the other thing that I really encourage patients and their caregivers to do is to speak up about other concerns or questions. Um, you know, when you have a 15, 20-minute visit, it's, it's a, there's a lot that has to go on during that time. And sometimes there are concerns beyond just the treatment that um, we would want to know about. So, you know, if, if you're struggling with steroids, for example, the dexamethasone, and it's causing changes in mood or sleep, those are really important things to bring up uh, with your provider because there are often things we can do to make that better. Um, we can lower doses. We can change the timing of doses. So I really encourage all patients and their caregivers to speak up and speak out. Your care team really cares, um, and they want to really provide the most comprehensive best care that they can. And so use your visits, your telemedicine visits, or your regular ones uh, as your time to engage with your care team to, to really seek um, as a team to get the best medical care possible for your myeloma. Um, again, I want to thank everyone uh, who's on the call today, and it's been such a pleasure uh, to be included uh, in this wonderful cancer care teleconference. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. O'Donnell. That was an outstanding presentation and lots of great information for people about what constitutes exercise and movement and what you can do and also how to prepare for your telehealth telemedicine appointments. And now we're going to move on to the questions for our panel of experts. And I'm going to ask Emma to explain to everybody how to queue up and ask questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Emma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Uh, this question, I'm going to start with this question for Dr. Hartley-Brown. What happens if on a triple treatment but doesn't get to zero cancer even after 12 months? Is this significant? Okay, so I'm hearing from this question that you're asking about triple therapy with, uh, usually this is usually with uh, lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone. And in the setting of receiving this as triple therapy up front, you may not necessarily get your M spike to zero. Does not mean that the medication isn't working. It just means that you've now made that. Let's assume it's 0 0.5 for the intent having a number. That could be in the setting of a very good partial response, and what a very good partial response is, is at least 90% or more reduction in your M protein uh, that was measurable at the start of diagnosis and that they're tracking over the time of treatment. <clears throat> Often for patients, if we get into a VGPR or better or a very good partial response or better, uh, we, if the patient is eligible for transplant, we will try to do a uh, autologous stem cell transplant. If the patient is not eligible for transplant for various reasons, then we may uh, transition that patient to a maintenance therapy or maintenance version, which could be uh, simply lenalidomide alone, uh, often in the setting of having those standard risk cytogenetics where we um, are not concerned about the disease behaving super aggressively. Or more often, what, we, what you tend to see is sometimes we will do a doublet maintenance therapy 
But again, we tend to adjust the maintenance phase based on the patient, what their side effects have been on the treatment, uh, what their disease was like at the time of diagnosis, and what cytogenetic markers we saw at the time of the diagnostic bone marrow. So having a M-spike of, for example, 0.5 in the setting of a very good partial response or better is actually a good thing. Um, we would love to see that M-spike go to zero, but I've had plenty of patients who have had an M-spike that is 0.2, and it lingers between 0.2 and 0.3 for years. And I mean like for over 10 years. And they're fine, they're healthy, and they're only on maintenance therapy with lenalidomide, for example. So it doesn't mean that the disease is um, is uh, definitely going to progress or any worse than anyone else. There's so many things about multiple myeloma that varies from patient to patient. And sometimes patients get into this, we call it an MGUS-like state, and they remain there for quite a long time. It's the progression of the disease that is more concerning and how aggressively the disease behaves over time that tends to be more of an issue. <clears throat> I hope that answers your question. Thank you, excellent. Thank you so much. And uh, for Dr. Butler, um, I am scheduled for my transplant with my stem cells in the fall. I understand what it does myeloma to my myeloma, but what will it do to my body? I'm a very active 50-year-old man. I teach dance. I'd like to te I can teach dance um, again on chemo now, but concerned that after the transplant, my body will be toast as well as my cancer. Could you just comment on that? Sure. Um, so if you do some research on stem cell transplants, um, you'll come up with a mixture of things because there's two very different kinds of transplant that are done. Allogenic transplant, where you, uh, you get some cells and you get an immune system from some other person, that causes some permanent changes. And for some people, those changes can be problematic. You have to stay on medicine and, and uh, you know, there can be a bit of a, uh, a tension or a conflict between the, the, the other person's cells and the rest of your body. Allo or autotransplant, which is the only one that's commonly done for myeloma, um, really, assuming that nothing unexpected happens, it goes very smoothly for most people, and you should be able to get back to where you were. Um, now, that doesn't mean you get back right away. The process of going through a transplant, a lot like the process of, of a lot of our other treatments, you know, it means... Uh, having days where you feel where you're stuck in hospital, can't really go anywhere and do very much, days when you feel weak or sick to your stomach or ha have any number of symptoms. And so people tend to lose a lot of their conditioning. They lose some muscle. They're just not in the shape that they were when they started. Um, and, uh, you know, not just for a, a myeloma patient, but for anyone, you know, in the middle age or later, um, that fitness is a lot easier to lose than it is to gain back. And so you, you can't expect to walk out of the hospital from your transplant and be doing everything you were when you went in. But you can get it, and, and, the, and it, getting it is just a matter of patience and persistence and, and uh, motivation to, you know, to work on endurance and exercise, eat a good diet, um, you know, gradually build yourself back up. And, um, and for some people, that takes uh, only a month or two, and some people takes it takes it's a year you know, or more before they really feel like they're, they're over it. Um, but you can get there. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. I hope that's helpful to our registered. And please also you know, ask your healthcare team about this as well. They know you well. It sounds like you're an active person, and you um, want to get back to that activity as well. Um, and another question. Uh, for Dr. Um, for Dr. Hartley Brown, um, if the myeloma causes severely broken spinal bones, what should we do? What 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 should we need to know about their fragility after they are healed? Okay, uh, <clears throat> so the spinal columns 
uh, is uh, many times patients may present with uh, what we call compression fractures. Uh, that basically means that the <coughs> vertebral bone, uh, a seg segment or segments of the vertebral bones have gotten so weakened by the, by the damage to the bone that they compress from the weight of the other bones above or from activity. Um, and that can happen um, in various cases. It could be one or more of the vertebral bones that are compressed. Not every time do you need to have a surgical intervention. Sometimes you will require a surgical intervention. And that can vary from stabilization of the spine, which is more of an open type of procedure, uh, to a more minimally invasive procedure, such as vertebroplasty or kyphoplasty, where they essentially um, bring you into the operating room, put a, a small hole into that uh, area of concern, and they <clears throat> kind of clear out the area and put some biological cement essentially into that area to stabilize that vertebral body. You, I tell this to patients all the time, you're not likely to uh, regain all the height you've lost from having a vertebral compression fractures. Uh, the, 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 the interventions are to uh, lessen pain, and so often after you've had a surgical procedure, you may require some radiation therapy to that area because when the area is compressed, it can um, affect the nerves or the nerve roots that are coming up, and you can get pain. <coughs> In order to manage uh, or to heal the bone, it really boils down to that systemic treatment that we uh, talked about earlier, which is... Uh, Zomeda or uh, denosumab, zolindronic acid or denosumab, um, either of which will help the bones to strengthen. And the strengthening of the bones is what you need in order to prevent, um, you know, further compression fractures. Now, keep in mind, every time the myeloma becomes active again, or as we would call it, relapses, then you can have relapses in the form of affecting the bones well, or you can have relapses in other ways. But every time the myeloma is active, you still want to maintain some sort of treatment with either of these agents because it's the active myeloma that really, really can cause um, uh, significant bone disease and bone damage. When you're in stable um, myeloma, sometimes we will pull back. And so instead of giving these agents once a month, we may reduce the in interval uh, to um, uh, less frequent and, and give it maybe once every three months. <clears throat> but you're, you're, you're not likely to regain height. Um, the damage in the bone, depending on how significant the damage was, is, you know, you're essentially going to have some signs that it was there and that that happened. It will become different in terms of how it looks on the film or on the PET scan, um, but you will have chronic changes in that area uh, if you want to think of it as a scar, but it, it, you will have chronic changes there. Those changes uh, we are unable to reverse, essentially, um, but we can strengthen the bones and try to prevent further damage. Thank you so much. That's really very helpful. And um, I, I'm going to ask each of our speakers, I'm going to ask um, Dr. Butler and Dr. Hartley-Brown just to give us some, some takeaway points, perhaps one or two sentences of what you'd like people to take away from today's program. So I'll start with Dr. Butler. Okay. Well, uh, thank you all for, for being part of this. Um, as I said at the beginning, this is a disease where we've made a lot of progress and we feel good about what we can do about it. This doesn't mean that we're done. Uh, that doesn't mean that it, it, it's, a, it's a, an easy problem to confront, but we have a lot of tools to do it. And, um, and what I want people to take away is that um, there are many ways to beat cancer. Cure is always the best. Unfortunately, it's not something we, we re regularly do with myeloma, 
But uh, if you are able to live well, live long, live healthy, enjoy your life, do what you want to do, um, then, then that's another way you've beaten the disease. And that is very possible for a lot of our myeloma patients. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that uh, with the right treatment. And uh, so I hope you've learned something about what those treatments are. And, um, and I hope you all do well. Thank you so much, Dr. Butler and Dr. Um, Hartley-Brown. I, I would say you're doing what you should be doing, which is listening to a conference like this, where you're learning more about what's happening to your body. You're asking questions. And <clears throat> that is what you need to do. Multiple myeloma is a very, very, um, you know, multifaceted disease. And it's, it's not an easy thing to comprehend. Um, and there are many treatments that you have to undergo. And even when you undergo the treatments, the disease may come back. So keep asking questions. Get yourself a team of healthcare providers that you feel confident in, that you feel secure in, that you know that if you need to reach out and you need the proper treatment, that you feel confident that you're getting that treatment. And learn as much as you can. There are a lot of resources available, whether it's through video conferences, online conferences. There are things that are posted on the web on some of the reputable sites. I usually tell my patients, go to .org sites, uh, .org sites rather than .com sites, uh, and, um, you know, ask questions and feel empowered to do so because uh, what's going to be helpful for one patient is going to be very different for another, and you need to feel comfortable that you're getting the optimal care. And we're here for you. This is a team effort. You're not alone. So I hope this all helps. And um, for all of you out there who actually do have myeloma, uh, I hope, you know, you're getting the optimal care and you're improving as, as time goes by. Oh, thank you so much. And um, I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I also want to thank our participants who really asked such great questions. Although we've done this program before, I think your questions today have been much more informed and, and really great questions. So um, really fantastic. Um, I also want to remind everybody that we have a part two of this uh, two-part series, and this part two is for caregivers. Um, and so I would encourage you to sign up for that program. It's on April 27th. Some of you have already, but if you haven't, go to it and go ahead and sign up for it because that is um, the next program that we have coming up on multi-myeloma, and I'm sure that um, caregivers will be very interested in that program. And now um, I do want to say a few words about cancer care services, and um, I want to wrap this up to some extent. Um, I want you all to know that um, uh, Don Callen Mester, and I'm a Senior Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care, and I wanted to go over with you the free programs and services that Cancer Care offers nationally. Um, and many people contact our Cancer Care Hope Line, 1-800-813-4673. And that line is staffed by oncology social workers, and they will pick up the phone when you call. And usually people have a specific question they may be asking about with transportation or wanting to get some support or counseling or join an online support group. And so the social worker usually addresses that question and then goes over all the services that we offer. Um, so what are those services? So we offer practical financial assistance and co-payment assistance, which really helps a lot with the costs of care. Um, and many of you I know live in rural areas, and the cost of transportation is really enormous. Um, you may be traveling 300 miles from your cancer center, and that could be a, a trip both uh, 300 miles each way. That's a huge amount of expense for gas and just wear and tear on your car or if, someone, if someone's driving you. And so we do help with those kinds of things. We also offer online support groups and groups that are specific to people with myeloma or with any other type of cancer as well, so that we do offer help to people with all types of cancers. And we also, the online groups are also for people living with myeloma, for older people, for younger people, for caregivers, um, so for partners, spouses, adult children, so young adults. So basically we do have, and if you go to our website, www.cancercare.org, you can see all the services that we offer there. In addition to that, we do offer these workshops 
We do offer also resource navigation, helping you to find resources. If we don't have the resource, let's say on food insecurity that you might be suffering with right now, we can help you to find a place. We won't just give you a list of places, but we'll actually find a place, connect you to that place, and be sure you get the help that you, that you need. Um, so that there are hundreds of organizations out there in addition to cancer care. Um, and um, we also offer publications. You can go to our website and see all the publications we offer, and you can download the fact sheets and informational pieces that we offer. That's free. Um, and also, there are many organizations out there. I'll mention at the very end what those organizations are. And so, um, basically, um, I, I just want to be sure that you do know that you can get um, free help from, from a number of places in addition to cancer care as well. And now I do want to um, just kind of go over with you the fact that we don't want anyone of you to leave this program feeling you're alone. First of all, you are connected to your healthcare team. And your healthcare team um, actually will provide all the um, services that you may need um, in terms of um, when you think of your healthcare team, they know you the best, they can answer your questions the best, and they, they actually have a number of different disciplines on that team. So of course there is your oncologist, your hematologist, oncologist, oncology nurse, oncology social worker, financial specialist, patient navigator. So there's a huge number of people who can help you with whatever concerns you may have. And never hesitate to bring to your healthcare team the questions you may have about finances, about you know concerns in addition to the medical treatment of your myeloma, because there'll be somebody on that team that can actually help you as well. Also, there are a number of organizations out there, and we'll be sending you at the um, a couple of days a survey monkey evaluation, which we appreciate you filling out as an evaluation of the program, but it also includes all sorts of resources. And in there, we will include the Leukemia and Homeless Society, um, because they have a number of resources, and the Multimyeloma Research Foundation as well. And we'll be putting in organizations that you may want to actually access for help because they are very well, are re, very well supported. The information is very up to date and current, and you'll be able to get all sorts of resources from them. So as we conclude the program today, I hope that you'll feel that although you may at times feel alone, that you do have a healthcare team. You have a lot of organizations out there that could help you, um, and um, and that. I guess you're not alone, absolutely not alone. Um, so I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.